This morning's sermon comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Howard Schnellenberger. I don't know if the name rings a bell. It probably doesn't. So I'll tell you who he is. Uh, he was the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes from the late 70s into the early 80s. And uh, he won a national championship uh, with Miami, coached them to a national championship in 1983. So he was a really well-known, legendary college football coach. I grew up in South Florida, and it was uh, one weekend. I don't know why we were down uh, on Miami's campus, but we were just touring the Hurricanes campus. I was, um, I was probably in late elementary school, and this was probably about a year or so before they won their national championship, so they were on the rise. And so we wanted to walk through their athletic department and uh, their athletic facilities. So we're just kind of walking through, and there's a building where I guess all the athletic offices were. And, um, and so we walk in, and there's a lobby area with a, you know, a second floor balcony that people can walk and look over and see in the lobby area. And so we walk in as a family. It's me, my brother, sister, parents. And, uh, and this man from the top says, hello, how are you? You know, and so we lift our heads up, and it's, it's Howard Schnellenberger. And he says, why don't you guys come up the stairs, come into my office. You know, I'm in late elementary school. My brother's probably late middle school. You know, we're big football fans. And so we're walking up the stairs, staring at each other, staring at my dad going, did we just get invited into, How I mean, Howard Schnellenberger's office, right? To modernize it, think like walking Alabama's campus. And Nick Saban says, hey, come on up to my office, right? We walk up there and, and he just starts talking to us. Like we're just normal, like his friends, family. He's just kind of, you know, shooting the bull with us and, and carrying on conversation. And, and we're sitting there going, what, what is happening right now? This shouldn't be happening, right? Um, and apparently, I, I still don't know why he did it. It's not like I was a junior in high school, six foot three, 245 pounds with a physique that looked like a recruit, nor did my brother. Uh, I think he just genuinely wanted to welcome us. And uh, I look back on that and I, I go, wow, he, uh, we were trying to figure out how to relate to him. Like, is, are we relating to the coach of the Hurricanes or is this just a guy that's a nice guy, you know, that we're just talking with? And he was relating to us. And I still don't know to this day why he was relating to us, but he was in some way welcoming us. And I look back on that and I think about what that says or that dynamic that exists in all of our relationships. In a relationship, you relate to someone in a certain way and that person relates to you, right? And, and the relationship thrives when you know how to relate to that person and they know how to relate to you. So we could talk about this across friendships. We could talk about this across father, mother, children, siblings, 
coworkers, right? All of this is, but it's how does the person relate to you and how are you relating to the person? Now, those are all good questions. The deeper question and the more important question that you have to answer in your lifetime is this. How do you relate to God? And how does God relate to you? Because when you know how to relate to God and you understand how he relates to you, then you've got a relationship that thrives. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Galatians chapter four, is how you relate to God and how God relates to you. And he speaks about it in this topic or this concept of adoption. That adoption is gonna answer this question of how you relate to God. So we're gonna look at the rights of adoption and then the power of adoption. So first, the rights of adoption. Paul begins in the first two verses explaining adoption with an illustration. Now, this illustration was incredibly relevant in the first century, a little harder for us to get our hands around. So let me explain it because it's very important to understanding adoption and what Paul is trying to explain. So these first two verses are describing what was very common. And that was in, in those days, it was very common for a wealthy man to turn his heir over to a guardian to be watched. And the heir was the, usually the eldest son who was gonna inherit the father's estate. And so the father would take this heir and put him under the care of a guardian. In fact, in Roman law, up until the age 14, the heir was under the control of a tutor. And then up until age 25, he was under the control of what was called a curator. The point is there was a guardian that was looking over, watching out, uh, exercising oversight over this heir, right? And the heir knew by title that he would have the, the father's estate, but he didn't possess it yet. And up until he possessed it, it was hard to distinguish anything between him and a slave because the, the heir was under constant watch by the guardian. When they would wake up, what clothes they would put on, when they'd go to school, when they'd come home from school, when they'd go to bed. It was, it was just, it was a child that was under guardianship, right? It was the heir under guardianship. And so this is the, the illustration that, that Paul leads with. Let me give you a modern day example. This might just crystallize it for you. In 1999, the, the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland went to court to block their son from getting the father's estate at age 18, right? The heir, Earl Percy, their son was 14 at the time, and they didn't want him to get the estate when he turned 18 because the estate was massive, right? This kid was gonna get a castle, he was gonna get one million pound inheritance, and he was gonna get a half a million annual income when he received this inheritance. And so his parents were trying to protect him. They didn't want him to get this too early because they saw what happened to other British noblemen when they would get an estate early and they would just squander it in wild living. So they went to court and they put it in a trust that he couldn't touch until age 25. But when he came of age, the inheritance would be his. Now, that's the illustration Paul uses. What does it mean spiritually? What does it mean? Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
That word enslaved, think of it now what Paul's talking about, more in the control of or under the control of, just like the, the heir was under the control of a guardian. Paul's saying that when we were children, we were enslaved or under the control of, right? Elementary principles. Now that word principle, it means things placed side by side in a row, like letters of an alphabet. So what Paul is saying is that when we were children or under Old Testament law, God's people were in grammar school. They were learning their ABCs. They were being taught like they were in elementary school. Old Testament law was like elementary school. The Jews had specific rules and regulations and practices, and they had a lot of them regarding worship, where they worshiped, a particular place they worshiped in, uh, particular sacrifices that had to be done in an exact particular way. All these requirements are what constituted the Old Testament law. Paul's saying keeping these was like being in grammar school, right? like tracing the ABCs written by the hand of God. Now, Paul uses the same word, elementary principles, in Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, that's the same word in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, as elementary principles. If with Christ you died to the elementary, elemental spirits of the world, why as if you still as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then verse 17 of Colossians 2 says that all of these regulations and these laws in the Old Testament of how life was to be lived, right? The ABCs, the grammar school, all of these regulations, he says, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in the Old Testament, God's people related to God by faith, but it was through the law. It was through what Paul calls here the shadow, the shadow of the law. Now, you all know what, it, what, what a shadow is, right? A shadow doesn't create itself. A shadow doesn't exist apart from the one who casts the shadow. The shadow is just an image. It's a silhouette. It's just of the one who casts the shadow. If you're standing at the corner of a building, right? And the light's right. And somebody's coming around the corner, right? If the light's right. What comes first? Their shadow comes first. And then they appear. Paul's saying the Old Testament law, it's, it, it's a shadow. The substance is Christ. That Christ is the one who casts the shadow of the Old Testament law. So look at verses four and five, which answers who casts the shadow of the law. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That says at just the right time, at the time set by the Father, that Jesus Christ, the one who had cast the shadow, appeared that Jesus was born a Jew, he was born of a woman, the Virgin Mary, and he was born under the law. He was born obligated to the law. And he fulfilled the law perfectly, every last dot of the law, including being circumcised on the eighth day. Right? Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the one who cast the shadow, and when he came, he was the one 
who filled the shadow and therefore removed it. We've got this uh, in our backyard. We've got a spotlight that sits right on our uh, back of our house. And at night, it will light up our backyard. And when I stand uh, a distance from that spotlight, right, if I stand a good distance away, that light casts an enormous shadow of me. I'm tall, but this shadow is massive. And the far, if I'm really far away from the light, it's a massive shadow and it's very fuzzy around the edges. It's big and it's not super clear. As I move towards the light, right, that shadow gets shorter, smaller, and it gets much more clear. In fact, as I get really close to the light, my shadow is more of my size and really clear around the edges. Until when I stand under the light, there's no more shadow. Think of the Old Testament that way. So in Genesis 3, right after sin enters the world, and God promises to send a Messiah to make things right, he cast a big shadow. And it was a fuzzy shadow. Think uh, in Exodus. Think Mount Sinai. When God comes and and, and gives the, the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? That shadow gets a little bit smaller, a little bit clearer. Then think of the prophets. Think of Isaiah who talks about the suffering servant that was going to come, speaking of the cross that this Messiah would bear. Now the shadow gets even smaller and really clear around the edges. But when Jesus Christ was born of a woman under the law into this world, there was no more shadow, right? He filled filled the shadow because he's the one that cast the shadow. And so why did God send forth his son? Why is there no more shadow? Why did he send Jesus, right? Who was the the, the one that was casting the shadow to fill it? Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent Jesus to redeem. That word means to purchase. God sent Jesus to purchase us out of the shadow of the law, that we would be adopted as sons and daughters through Christ so that we would no longer relate to God through the shadow of the law, but relate to the one who cast the shadow, which is Jesus Christ. The reason Paul's saying this is because the false teachers that were bringing all of the, they're called the Judaizers, this false teaching in the Galatian church were saying that the law was like graduate school for the gospel. That if you really wanted to get serious about the gospel, then you would adhere to the law. And Paul's saying, no, quite the opposite. He's saying quite the opposite. That the law is like going back to kindergarten, learning your ABCs again. You know, back to his illustration, right? The guardian that, would, would, that the law was, had him in elementary school, set free the law, now in Christ. And so going back to the law would be like a a PhD student going back to kindergarten to learn his alphabet. Makes no sense. Paul's saying Christ, the one who cast the shadow, has come. Why would you go back to possessing a shadow, right? When you can possess Christ. My son, this was years ago, we would play this game in the backyard. 
as I told you, there's a spotlight on the back of our house. And, and during the time of the year where it would get dark early, we would play this game when it got dark because we could do it before bedtime. And the game was, I would, I would stand in front of the spotlight and it would cast this huge shadow across the backyard and I would move back and forth and my shadow would just move back and forth across the yard. And my son would chase the shadow and try to step on the shadow. And we'd do it. He'd laugh. And he, I mean, it'd just be a great time. Back and forth, chasing the shadow, trying to step on it. We've graduated from that game. We haven't played it in years. Do you know what game we play now? I run back and forth in the backyard, and he tries to step on me. He chases me. He steps on me. He wrestles with me. He doesn't chase or interact with a shadow anymore. It's me. That's what Paul's saying with the law. Jesus fulfilled the law completely. Filled the shadow. There is no more shadow. It's Christ. And so we relate to God, not through the shadow of the law, but through Jesus Christ, the one who cast the shadow in the first place and now who has absolutely filled it. During his days at Oxford, John Wesley helped establish a group called the Holy Club. This is what they did. Listen to this. The students in the club went to church, studied their Bibles, fasted, prayed, went into the prisons and workhouses to do evangelism. They provided food, clothing, and education for the poor children of the city. Sounds really good, doesn't it? You know that John Wesley, as he looked back on that, and what he did for God, what he would say before his conversion, before he really came to know Christ, this is what he wrote. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. God sent Jesus Christ into this world, born of a woman, born under law, to set you free that you would become adopted sons and daughters of the Father and that you would relate to God through Christ as a beloved son and daughter with full rights of sonship. Now, let me try to make this a little practical. What I just read of John Wesley and what he did for God before he said he was actually converted, when he realized he was a son, not just a slave, those are all good things. We would call them disciplines. Here's the difference. Do you do your daily devotional? Or do you meet Christ and commune with Christ through your daily devotional? Do you do your weekly Bible study? Or do you meet with Christ through your weekly Bible study? Do you attend worship once a week on Sundays? Or do you meet with Christ through worship once a week on Sundays? 
Adoption means that you are a son and daughter or a son or daughter of the king. That you have full rights as a son or daughter. And as we're going to see, the same rights as Jesus Christ. Now, it's one thing to know you're adopted and to even have the paperwork to prove it, right? It's one thing to know you're an adopted son or daughter and to have the paperwork right here to prove it. It's another thing to experience it. And that's why the rights of adoption is not enough. God sent Jesus to give, the, give us the full rights of adoption, but then he sent his Holy Spirit to give us the experience of adoption, the power of adoption. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba means dear dad or dearest father. It's an intimate word that means daddy. And what's most striking about verse six is that it's the spirit of Jesus Christ in us crying out, Abba, Father. Because Jesus himself cried Abba in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. He was in the garden facing the anguish of the cross that was before him and the pain he would endure. And he cried out to his father, listen to what he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In other words, he was saying, Daddy, Daddy, is there any other way to get your children back? That was the cry from Jesus' lips. And Paul says that God sends the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, into us, making that same cry so that we have the same access to the God of the universe as Jesus the Son. Now, that, that's astounding. Let me try to illustrate this. If you have children, have your kids ever, out of just making fun, being funny, out of jest, called you by your first name? Mine have done that. It usually happens after we're in a work setting together or you're in a work setting or, or you're in a social gathering and everybody's calling you by your first name and then you get in the car and they, they, they call you by your first name. They think it's funny, right? It's, they're not intentionally trying to disrespect you. Now, why do you correct them? Why do you correct them when they call you by your first name? Most of the time, we think it's a respect issue that it's an issue of disrespect. Granted, they're, they're, that may be part of it. But the real issue is you don't want, or your kids don't want you treating them as if they only know you by your first name. That your kids want and need you as father, as daddy. When my kids call me by my first name out of jest, the reason there's a correction is because my kids have special access to daddy, not to Keith. 
people that call me Keith don't get to laugh and play rock, paper, scissors before bedtime. People that call me Keith don't get cuddle time before bedtime. My kids who call me daddy get that time. Uh, I won't drop everything at work with a snap of a finger for someone who calls me Keith. But for my kids who call me daddy, I will drop everything. They have special access to me. Now, none of us have a right by birth to call God Father. The only person who has a right to call God Father is Jesus Christ, the Son. And yet, when we put our trust in Christ, we then have the right to call God Father or to use that intimate word of daddy or Abba because attached to Christ by faith, we have the same access to God the Father. And I just want to, if you're thinking about lunch today, if you're thinking about your day tomorrow in the office that is stressful, I want you to just stop for a second. And I want you to hear this again. If you are in Christ, you have the same access to God as Jesus the Son has. That is astounding. And yet that's the truth of adoption. God doesn't just give you the permission to cry out Abba to him. He actually sends the spirit of his son into you and urges you and compels you to cry out, Abba. That's what he wants you to call him. It's not just permission. It's an urging by the spirit of his son that lives in you. You get to call God the same intimate address or use the same intimate address as Jesus the son because you have the same access as Jesus the son. So you experience the power of adoption by number one, having the same access to God the Father as Jesus the Son has. Number two, you experience the power of adoption by enjoying the same inheritance as Jesus the Son enjoys. Remember, we're talking about inheritance here. Romans chapter eight. Let me back up. Verse seven here in Galatians 4 so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That word heir, again, means the eldest son who would receive the father's estate. That you actually receive the same inheritance as Jesus the son. Now, people will read this adoption language here in, in, in Galatians 4. It's also in Romans 8. And I'll hear people argue that this is gender insensitive, right? Wouldn't it be better if it said you become sons and daughters of God? And the answer is potentially yes, but it would miss the entire point. 
Tim Keller tells the story of a woman that he spoke to that helped him understand this. She was from a non-Western family. She was from a traditional family in a traditional culture. And in that traditional culture, there was one son in her family. There was a son, and it was just understood that the son would receive a vast majority of the estate, the provision, and the honor from the family. And the saying was, was basically, he's the son, you're just the girl. And in a traditional culture, that's how it worked, that daughters were second-class citizens. They, they didn't receive the inheritance the eldest son did. And so this woman was studying these passages on adoption, probably this one in Galatians 4, the one in Romans 8. And as she read it, she had this aha moment when she realized, wait a minute, this isn't gender insensitive. This is a revolutionary claim by which Paul is saying, and this goes back to male-female at the end of chapter 3, that if you trust Jesus Christ, that you receive the inheritance just like an eldest son would receive the inheritance in a traditional culture. But that women or non-eldest sons aren't second class. They don't get the crumbs. Paul's making this revolutionary claim that everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, that if you're in Christ, you receive the same inheritance as Jesus the Son, that you receive the honor and the love. And so rather than being gender insensitive, this is a revolutionary promise that raises you to the highest honor by God adopting you as his son. Your adoption means that you receive the same inheritance as Jesus the Son. Romans chapter eight, verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Your adoption means that you are loved like Jesus is loved by the Father. That you receive the same love that Jesus Christ the Son receives. That you are honored like Jesus the Son is honored. That you receive the same honor as Jesus the Son. That you will receive a body free from decay and death and sin like Jesus the Son has. That you have a life that will go on forever if you're in Christ like Jesus the Son. Your inheritance is not different. You don't get the crumbs. You get the same inheritance as Christ the Son. And your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that inheritance. It is secure because it's, in, it's secure in Christ. Now back to the question. How do you relate to God? Probably the better question or the more diagnostic question is, how do you know that you're relating to God intimately as a beloved son or daughter? 
of the king. Let me give you some tendencies that may help you answer this question. And I'm gonna set these tendencies up between orphan and son or daughter, right? Orphan or slave, son or daughter. The orphan tends to be anxious about friends, money, school, grades, etc. The son or daughter feels freed from worry because of God's love. The orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. The son or daughter is open to criticism because he or she rests in Christ's perfection. The orphan's solution to failure is try harder. The son or daughter is trusting less in self and more in the Holy Spirit. The orphan tends to compare himself or herself with others. The son or daughter is content in relationships because he or she is accepted by God. The orphan lacks a vital daily intimacy with God. The son or daughter is learning to live in a daily partnership with God. God has sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into your heart to cry out, Abba, Father, to cry out, Daddy. You are loved just like the son, Jesus, is loved. You are honored just like the son, Jesus, is honored. You are a beloved son, a beloved and cherished daughter of the king. Let's pray. Father, it is astonishing to hear these truths because every part of us, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our independence, because of just feeling a sense of unworthiness, struggle to believe that this is true that you not only give us permission to call you Abba, to call you Daddy, but you compel us and urge us to do so by sending the Spirit of your Son into our hearts. Father, we confess the many ways that we live as orphans. And we pray today, as you call us to your table, because you have a seat for us at your table, where you feed us, that you would convince us that we are your children, that we are beloved, that we have the same access to you as Jesus, that we have the same inheritance as Jesus. Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, would you indeed prepare us to receive this meal and receive the work of your spirit to convince us and remind us of who we are as your children. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.